Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 42 in our series for 2022. And today's date is Friday, November the 18th. First, I'll be talking to James Bowe, co-founder of new Aussie fintech provider Own Home, which helps Australians buy their own property in this tough market. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market and economic outlook for 2023. But now let's talk to James Bowe. Well, James, how does Own Home work? Well, Own Home provides a alternative pathway to home ownership for folks who lack the upfront deposit to achieve their dreams of home ownership. And the way that we deliver on that is through a rent-to-own pathway to home ownership, in which our upfront cost is 90% less versus a typical 20% deposit in stamp duty. And that journey looks like customers applying to own home. Step one, you know, we approve you for a buying amount. You direct us to the home that you want purchased off the open market. We then go and take care of all of the diligence and negotiation on price with the real estate agent, purchase that property for you. You move in and you've entered into an option and lease agreement with Own Home that gives you the right, but not the obligation to buy that property back from Own Home at a pre-agreed price. And each month, a third of your monthly payments are going towards the accrual of a deposit towards that purchase of the property. And so you're then able to shift onto title once you've built up that sufficient deposit and take out at that point in time, sort of a traditional bank mortgage. So what kind of deposit do people have to put up? I mean, usually they have to put up considerably more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, medium price home in Sydney today, close to 1.5 million for a 20% deposit in stamp duty, you're looking at something like $340,000. In contrast with own home for that same property, you're looking at $35,000 of upfront costs. So that's two and a half percent of the value of the property. Right, which is considerably less than 350000 Indeed, indeed. And sort of in our lived experience and, and our view, it's the upfront cost to home ownership that's become the real barrier to entry for many, particularly my generation. So basically, you all you have to do is just submit your application online. Is that how you do it? That's right. So families apply online. That's then when you'll sort of be contacted by 
uh, someone from own home or able to able to book a call with own home. And that process looks very much like sort of a standard bank approval process in which we're looking to understand your income and expenses. You know, ultimately, we're not a replacement for a mortgage. All of our customers, unless they win the lottery or come into some fantastic inheritance, are going to need a mortgage ultimately to purchase that that property back from own home. And so we're really looking to understand that same sort of fundamental question. What can you afford on a monthly basis? Basically, you're... You don't own it. You don't own it when you move in. The, that's right. So the own home's customers are not on legal title. Own home for a period is the legal title owner of that property. So we're funding the entirety of that uh, upfront purchase. So where where are you based? So you're based in Sydney, obviously. So own home HQ is in Sydney. Uh, we're based in in Potts Point, but we operate throughout New South Wales, so Wollongong to Newcastle and the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, as well as the Gold Coast and Brisbane today. Right. Are you, are you planning to uh, move it further to, to Melbourne? Yeah, absolutely. We know that this sort of struggle of the upfront deposit is a growing one and one that's felt right around sort of capital cities in, in Australia. So you'll, you'll be moving it right around Australia? In time. Exactly. Exactly. So from little things, big things grow. And we've been really delighted with the experience we've been able to deliver for our early customers and, and can't wait to serve many more. Right. And basically you're a fintech, aren't you? So, so it's all online, totally. That's right. Yeah. So completely digital experience and our customers in, in, also in terms of when they're living in their home, it's, the, it's also a digital experience in terms of being able to manage that, that property experience. So if you've got a broken tap or leaking roof, jump onto the, the app and organize that, that handyman to take care of that. And those are costs that are covered by own home. Now, let me understand this. You, you pay a security deposit and then you pay gradually over time. Over what level of time? I mean, this this all has to be negotiated. So what sort of time level are we talking about here for people moving into a new home? Yeah, well, I mean, nothing needs to necessarily be negotiated. Uh, it's all, you know, completely predetermined at the outset of, you know, your engagement with Own Home. And the price is very transparently the price that Own Home buys that property for on day one and then grows at a modest 3.8% per annum. And all the while, you're also accumulating a deposit that's equivalent to two and a half percent of the value of the property each year. And when I say the value of the property, I mean, with reference to that buyback price. So the property could have grown at a appreciated at a faster rate, and you'll be able to sort of realize that those capital gains when you uh, purchase that property back from own home. But you would have to surely have an agreed set of time frame. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So seven years is the length of the option with Own Home. And of course, if you haven't built up that deposit sufficiently at the end of those seven years, or you need further time, then the most logical thing to do there is to just extend that option. But we're very transparently not a replacement for a mortgage. You know, we're looking to get our customers mortgage ready. And so that's really the intended purpose of that seven year window, which is the longest globally of any model. Uh, delivering this pathway to home ownership. So how, how long has Own Home been going? So Own Home was founded 18 months ago. And to date, we've received over 13 billion in, in applications, um, but have supported dozens of families into their own home. Okay, so 18 months. So you, you're nowhere near that seven-year period. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But people obviously are very confident they can have it done in seven years. Yeah, I mean, historically, the Sydney property, Australian property, it is cyclical, as in as is any 
sort of asset class. And but historically, property has sort of ten- tended to operate in sort of a seven year cycle. And so historically, when we look back at sort of the performance of Australian property over a seven year period, I universally the growth rates have sort of resulted in at least sort of 2% per annum property price growth. Are you, you, obviously interest rates would come into that as well, wouldn't it? That's right. Yeah. I mean, interest rates are certainly one of the most important and largest drivers of any asset value and house prices are no different. Well, the RBA has lifted rates to 2.85%. I think the market's pricing at something like 4% by next year. How would that affect you? So ultimately, how that affects any aspiring first homeowner is, or, you know, home buyer for that matter, is that that tends to, well, it reduces buying power, all things being equal. So for a given level of income, bank assessments will now say that you can afford less on a monthly basis in terms of total buying power because the mortgage repayments have increased. In terms of own home and how that impacts own home, that means that ultimately own homes, own sort of cost of capital uh, also increases. And so in time, sort of new cohorts of customers face an increased cost to choose this path to home ownership. Yeah. Sure. But the question is, I mean, if it goes up to say 4%, where would that leave own home? I mean, you, that's that's uh, liabilities that you guys have to wear. So own homes funding costs are, are completely uh, are fixed. So so not with reference to, to the RPA cash rate. Um, and that's sort of like been a really important um, element of our focus on anti-fragility. So how does that, how does that work? How did you organize that? I guess that's, that's just one of the most important elements of our focus when we were sort of setting up our, our funding arrangements pre-interest rate rises. So how did that work? I mean, how, how did you organize that? Uh, I guess, I guess it, that, that was sort of one of the most important criteria for, for us in terms of like trading off different funding lines. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into that around under online fees or whether or not rates are fixed or floating. And so an important sort of driver of which facility to go with was those rates being fixed. So you, but own home would have funders. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 So who are your funders? Uh, so we don't, we don't share that publicly. Right. Okay. Yeah. okay. But obviously they're very confident. in, in your- Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Um, what we are public with is, you know, own homes investors include the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, large venture capital fund, Squarepeg, yeah, folks like that. Yeah. Oh right, right. So, so do you have you have extensive extensive investments? That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Leon. So, yeah. How did you go about organising that? I mean, you, you were out of nowhere. You, what you approached Commonwealth Bank and venture capital out of nowhere? Well, the in terms of, um, uh, uh, yeah. One, one person's version of out of nowhere, maybe another person's version of, of being a known entity. We've had a very long running sort of relationship with the Commonwealth Bank. Actually, prior to my co-founder and I even making our way back to Australia, we went through ComBank's sort of Accelerate program. We were the winners of, of sort of a grant from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia back in 2020. And that was to support and foster the creation of, of Own Home and this pathway to home ownership. Yeah. Well, that, that's so, so that's quite, that's quite reassuring that you have the Commonwealth Bank behind you. Yeah, it's certainly reassuring for us at Own Home. It's, um, it's reassuring uh, for our customers. And, and it's great to have, you know, what is objectively the largest supporter of, of first home buyers in this country in terms of mortgage origination as an important backer of own home. Yeah. Well, James, that's all fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. Great to be here. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Well, 
Shane, this year Australian investors had to contend with heightened share market volatility due to COVID-19 pandemic. We had the war in Ukraine, supply chain disruptions, high inflation, rising interest rates and fears over a possible global recession. And the share market actually fell 10% in the year to June. And, uh, what's your view about it and uh, how are we going to get through 2023? Well, I think in the short term, things are still a bit uncertain. And the big debate is, you know, how severe will any recession be if we are going to have one globally and in Australia and how much interest rates will go higher internationally, putting aside the geopolitical risks, which are obviously a bit of a constant at present. I think there's, there is a good argument to be made that maybe we've seen the bottom in share markets. US uh, global shares had something like a 25% top to bottom fall. That was from the highs earlier this year or late last year into the recent lows, which were just in the last couple of months. And we have seen some good technical signs that maybe we're trying to build a bit of a base. By the same token, those macroeconomic risks remain significant and they suggest that, you know, it's still too early to say we've seen the bottom. There's a couple of other positives in there, though. One is that uh, I think it's probably the case that we've seen the peak in US inflation. A lot of indicators which led on the way up are now, are now declining, whether you look at business surveys, whether you look at uh, many of the commodity prices, freight rates, supply disruptions and so on. There's an improvement there. The big debate is about services, which is still... Uh, still rising, but goods price inflation, which looks to have peaked in the US, um, tends to lead services inflation at turning points. And it, it suggests that perhaps we're getting close to the top on inflation, that is. The other point to note is that uh, typically shares rally in the US and then in Australia in this period of the year, particularly as we go into the Christmas New Year period, it's seasonally positive. We've also got the midterm elections. It's almost certain that the uh, the Republicans will get control uh, of one or both houses of Congress. Uh, historically, divided government hasn't been bad for shares. In fact, you could argue it's positive because it, it rules out the extreme policy moves by either side of politics. Uh, and you end up with centrist policies, which tend to be OK for the share market. And historically, the US share market has rallied in all of the 12-month period after the midterm election since 1950. So that, that's just that maybe we'll, we'll have a better year ahead of us. Uh, and indeed, I think it probably will be a better year ahead of us as investors shift their focus away from whether we'll have a recession or not to some signs of eventual recovery, either in later in 2023 or going into 2024. But for the time being, probably going to remain fairly volatile. But, it, but I think if you take a 12-month view, I, I tend to think that 2023 will be a far better year than 2022 turned out to be. What are the chances of a recession in the US? Look, I, I think in Europe it's probably about 80%. I was a little bit surprised by the GDP numbers which came out for the September quarter, which showed the European economy or the Eurozone still growing. I thought they probably would have tipped into recession, but they managed to hang in there. But I'd say it's still 80% probably. They go into recession probably in the March and June quarters of next year, and the key driver there is the surge in energy costs, which has taken a huge toll for European industry and consumers. Uh, in the US, I think it's 50-50. Uh, some people would say, well, maybe you already saw it in the first half of the year in the US, as we had two quarters in a row of negative growth in the US. But if you look at final demand and jobs growth and so on, that they don't tick the box for a recession. So it's unlikely the NBR will say that we've already seen a recession. But it, it is fairly close in the US, and I'd say it's 50-50 cool in the US as to whether they go into a, a real recession or not. Uh, in Australia, 
I, I think there's reason for optimism that we will avoid a recession in Australia, and I think the probability here is significant, but it's 40% with a 60% chance we'll avoid recession, and there's seven reasons why I think we can avoid it. Um, I won't go into the consumer. The consumer is going to struggle through the next year, and that's going to be a key source of slowdown in growth in the Australian economy, probably taking us down to one and a half, maybe even 1% growth over the next 12 months. But those seven reasons uh, were, were that the, cap, the business investment outlook is quite positive. There's a big pipeline of yet-to-be-completed building approvals, home building approvals, so there's a lot of work yet to be done in the housing sector. High energy prices are a cost to Australian consumers, but they also boost national income. And we can see that in the lower budget deficits we're seeing in Canberra, and that gives more flexibility for potential help coming out of Canberra. If things really fall apart globally, then commodity prices will probably plunge, taking pressure off inflation and pushing the Aussie dollar down. And the Aussie dollar was a saviour for the Aussie economy through the Asian crisis of the late 1990s, the tech wreck and the GFC. And a lower Aussie dollar helps uh, boost exports and constrain imports, which helps domestic uh, economy. We're looking at a rebound in immigration. That's picking up. Uh, that will ease the pressures in the jobs market. Uh, I think it, in Australia, inflation is a bit less of a problem than it is elsewhere. We're certainly not seeing the sort of wages growth that we're seeing in other countries, which means we should be able to get inflation down without the degree of tightening we've seen in other countries. And more recently... Uh, the RBA has moved into the slow lane. I think it had to accelerate at the start of this process. So that's why it did that with the rising interest rates. But it's a bit like uh, driving, you know, speeding kills. And if you raise interest rates too quickly, uh, travel too much ground too quickly and don't slow down, then the risk is you can have an accident. Unfortunately, the Reserve Bank is starting to slow down on the rate the rate hike. So for all those reasons, I think we'll probably avoid a recession, but I'd have to say the risk is around 40%. I was very struck by the RBA's statement on monetary policy, where they were saying there were so many unknowns ahead, and they were talking about inflation actually still being there till 2025, but they were saying basically all the unknowns meant there were big doubts about their forecasts. Well, there, there certainly are, and there probably always is. We've come through a period of relative stability, at least up until the pandemic. Things were relatively stable, uh, but the Reserve Bank still had problems with its forecast through then. It was chronically too optimistic on, on wages, and I'm not throwing stones at the RBA. You can throw the same stones at my forecast. I think that's the problem with forecasting, that it can be a bit hit and miss at times. But I think we're in this sort of zone. You know, we've come from the GFC, where the big concern was, was about recession. People were talking about depression. Uh, deflation just 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 a couple of years ago and now everyone's talking about inflation so we've seen this huge swing around and that's made forecasting pretty fraught uh, but just as we were surprised at how quickly economic activity rebounded uh, and is now slowing now we're being surprised at how quickly inflation's picked up but i think the, the sting of the tail from the growth slowdown and the reality will be that uh, inflation is probably going to come down fairly quickly as well. Uh, if, you, if you just think about Australia, we've got consumer confidence at levels normally associated with recession. Now, I know other parts of the economy are feeling a lot happier, but that, that weakness in consumer confidence, a new low reported by the Melbourne Institute and Westpac with the latest figures for November, that points to a big slowdown in consumer spending ahead, which is really going to take pressure off inflation, make it really hard for companies to continue raising prices. Now, of course... That's not going to stop energy prices from going up. In fact, the rise in energy prices is part of the reason that consumer spending will slow. But I think it is going to be, get harder and harder to have a generalised 
high level of inflation. Yes, we're going to have pockets of high inflation going right through next year, possibly into into 2024, but the, the broader picture will be one of slowdown as the economy slows down. And history tells us that when economic growth slows down and the economy is weakened, that, that also means uh, less pricing power and, and somewhat lower inflation. So what's your forecast for the Australian economy in 2023? Uh, 2023, I mean, we're not that far away from the Reserve Bank and the government. Uh, they've recently put out forecasts, growth around 1.5%, unemployment uh, heading up, at least from the middle of next year, uh, starting to push up towards 4%. And that, that, to me, I think is a reasonable base case. You, know. you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You can argue growth might be a little bit weaker, down around 1%, and that weakness will be led by weakness in consumer spending, but ultimately we avoid recession, but it's going to feel a lot tougher for Australians as we go through next year. But I guess the good news is that as growth slows, inflation with a lag will also slow. We're probably going to see the peak on inflation in the December quarter, in De- or this, the quarter we're in right now, and through next year it will probably slow, probably a bit faster than the Reserve Bank's allowing for, which I think will enable the cash rate to peak either at the end of this year or early next year. And then maybe by the end of 2023, or at least the start of 2024, then we should be able to start to see gradual interest rate cuts emerging. But obviously a fair way to go to get to that point. I guess the bad news is that if you're a recent home buyer, you know, someone who's bought in the last year or two, then there's, there's going to be more bad news on that front because interest rates are still rising. That is the reality. As growth slows, that will put more pressure on, on some families, unfortunately, with mortgages and lead to a potential increase in supply, all of which I think will lead to further falls in house prices. Our forecast is for a 15 to 20% top to bottom fall, of which we've done about 7%. Uh, so we've obviously got a fair way to go yet uh, in terms of the, the home price slump. And history also tells us in the last couple of cycles that house prices ultimately didn't bottom and start rising until the Reserve Bank started cutting interest rates. You can see that in 2019 and also back in 2011-12. And those rate cuts aren't going to, I don't think we'll, we'll see them until the end of 2023 at the earliest or the, or the start of 2024. So unfortunately, more bad news ahead for homeowners, but uh, maybe not so bad for those looking for a home. Uh, prices will be will be quite a lot lower than what they've been over last year. Well, it sounds like we're in for a very tough time for listen for the next another twelve months. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to remain a bit rough. The pandemic with geopolitical deterioration globally, and I mean the tensions between Russia and China on the one hand, and and the US and Western countries, including ourselves on the other hand, that those tensions are sort of a new phenomenon. That's that's sort of upsetting things a bit. But the pandemic really knocked the world economy off its rails. What was very smoothly functioning, supply chains, just-in-time inventory arrangements and so on, 
got hit for six through the pandemic and we're still we're still trying to recover from that people haven't got back to normal work patterns and so on and we're trying to work out what the new equilibrium will be and that's going to that's going to cause a bit of volatility for some time to come but hopefully for investors anyway 2023 should be a better year than 2022 was even though the first part of it might still see a little bit of volatility well, shane thank you very much for your time thank you leon so what's happening in the news? Well, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, said that he would give away most of his money to charity, making him the latest billionaire to pledge to donate his vast fortune during his lifetime. Mr Bezos is worth $124 billion, making him the world's fourth richest person, according to Bloomberg. In an interview with CNN released on Monday, Mr Bezos, appearing with his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez, said they were making preparations to be able to give away this money. He said that he wanted to give it in a way that maximised the impact of the donations. It's really hard, he said, and there are a bunch of ways, I think, that you could do ineffective things, he said. It was the first time that Mr Bezos announced that he, like several other billionaires, would give away the bulk of his wealth. In 2020, Mr Bezos pledged to give $10 billion to combat climate change as part of an initiative called the Bezos Earth Fund, Previously, his largest donations was a $2 billion gift to help homeless families and start preschools. On Saturday, the couple announced a $100 billion grant for the singer and philanthropist Olive Parton to direct to her chosen charitable causes as part of an annual gift called the Bezos Award for Courage and Civility. Mr Bezos has been criticised for not signing the Giving Pledge, a commitment by many of the wealthiest Americans to give away at least half their fortunes, started in 2010 by Bill and Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett and others. Mr Bezos did not address the Giving Pledge in the CNN interview. Mr Bezos' ex-wife, the author and philanthropist Mackenzie Scott in 2019 signed the pledge after their divorce. Ms Scott, who is estimated by Bloomberg to be worth $24 billion, has donated more than $12 billion to causes ranging from education to mental health. Ms Scott, who recently filed for divorce from her second husband, had given to more than 1,200 groups as of March. And Twitter has reinstated official badges for high-profile accounts to combat a growing problem of users impersonating major brands. The grey badge reappeared below the profiles of businesses and major media outlets on Friday. The identification market was rolled out early this week before being scrapped. Twitter is struggling with imposter accounts since the company allowed paying subscribers to get verified blue check marks. One account claiming to be Nintendo Inc. posted an image of Super Mario holding up a middle finger, while another posing as farmer giant Eli Lilly and Co. tweeted that insulin was now free, forcing the company to issue an apology. A purported Tesla Inc. account joked about the carmaker's safety record. To combat impersonations, we've added an official label to some accounts Twitter support tweeted on Friday. The world's wealthiest man who acquired Twitter last month for $44 billion is facing a slew of challenges as top advertisers pulled back from the platform amid concerns over the company's ability to tackle imposters and hate speech. Musk, who is also seeing resignations among his leadership team, said this week in his first address to employees that the company could face bankruptcy. And Elon Musk's efforts to reassure businesses that Twitter is safe for their brands have suffered another setback after one of the world's largest advertising agencies advised clients to suspend their spending. Omnicom, an American marketing conglomerate with more than 5,000 corporate clients, warned of the risk to companies' public profiles on the social network. They should halt activity there in the short term. It recommended changes to Twitter after Musk's $44 billion, at 65.7 billion Aussie takeover, caused problems for companies. Twitter was forced to pause a scheme in which users were given verified status for a fee of $8 a month after fake accounts took advantage. Musk51 said the weekend that Twitter's subscription service would probably return 
At the end of the week, the platform has been experimenting with an official mark for paying advertisers. In a memo entitled Twitter, Continued Brand Safety Concerns Obtained by the Verge Technology Website, Omnicom described evidence that the risk to our clients' brand safety has risen sharply to a level most would find unacceptable. The company, which has clients including Apple and McDonald's, advised pausing activity on Twitter until it could prove it has reintroduced safeguards to an acceptable level and has regained control of its environment. And thousands of contract positions have been slashed at Twitter as Elon Musk continues his aggressive firing spree. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, is further gutting the team to battle misinformation on the social media platform. As outsourced moderators learnt over the weekend, they were fired. The layoff happened not long after November the 4th, when Twitter fired around half its full-time workforce by email. Twitter's head of content moderation has since resigned from the company. Twitter and other big social media firms have relied heavily on contractors to track hate and other harmful content. According to CNBC, 4,400 out of 5,500 Twitter contractors have been impacted by job cuts, with staff reportedly not given advance notice. Employees told the publication the tech giant's internal communications team have also been let go recently. Swear CNBC also reported that terminated contractors based across the world only discovered they'd been let go after losing access to Slack and other work platforms over the weekend. The latest round of terminations comes hot on the heels of Elon Musk's decision to sack around half of Twitter's workforce soon after taking over the company on October the 28th, after shelling out a staggering US $44 billion. And digital asset exchanges are rushing to reassure clients that their funds are safe. As a collapse of Sam Bankman Freed's FTX crypto exchange ricochets through the industry, Binance, the world's largest crypto trading venue, as well as smaller rivals including Crypto.com, OKX and Deribit have vowed to publish proof that they hold sufficient reserves to match their liabilities to customers. Coinbase, a US-listed exchange, has also sought to distance itself from the crisis that has engulfed FTX, the digital asset venue founded by Sam Bankman-Fried. The sudden collapse last week of FTX and Bankman-Fried's trading shop, Alameda Research, once viewed as pillars of the industry, has severely eroded confidence in the digital asset market. FTX has less than $1 billion in easy, easy sellable assets against $9 billion in liabilities before it went bankrupt on Friday, the Financial Times reported on Saturday. Tether's eponymous US dollar stablecoin, the largest in the industry, has faced approximately $3 billion in redemptions in the past four days, according to data provider CoinMarketCap, underscoring how traders are yanking funds out of the digital asset market. Meanwhile, balances of Ether, the second biggest cryptocurrency, have dropped 7% in the past fortnight to $22.9 million across major crypto exchanges, including FTX, according to data from blockchain analytics platform Nansen. At current exchange rates, that points to a fall of about $2 million, which suggests some investors are pulling their coins from centralised venues in favour of storing them using their own systems. And Commonwealth Bank sends lending growth, especially to businesses, helped lift its first quarter cash profit by 2% to $2.5 billion. And billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has scored a resounding victory at AGL's annual general meeting, with all four of his independent director candidates appointed to the energy giant's board. The result heaps pressure on the current chair and board members who oppose the election of three of the four. Current AGL chair Patricia McKenzie acknowledged the election of all four candidates nominated by Mr Cannon-Brooks' investment company, Grok Ventures, despite the current board urging shareholders only to vote for one, Mark Prudell, while rejecting Kerry Schott, Christine Holman and John Palaz. Grok Ventures also welcomed the re-election of former Clean Energy Council Chair Miles George to the AGL board after his initial appointment a couple of months ago. And if investment firm Deutsche Bank's forecasts hold true, Australia will enter a recession next year. However, the bank has not worked out with the accepted definition of technical recession to produce its forecast. 
A recession is traditionally defined as two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, or GDP. Instead, Deutsche Bank looked at where it believes the unemployment rate is heading. It expects Australia's unemployment rate will spike higher next year as the economy slows. We expect Australia's unemployment rate to end 2023 at 4.5%, that is 1% point higher than the current unemployment rate at 3.5%, Deutsche Bank Chief Economist Bill O'Donoghue said. And a deal put in place to placate Western Australia when its share of GST revenue was tumbling is on track to cost the nation's taxpayers 10 times more than originally forecast, helping drive up federal government debt and interest payments to record levels. Pulled together by then-Treasurer Scott Morrison in 2018 before being put through Parliament by his successor Josh Frydenberg, the deal that was originally expected to cost $2.3 billion is now on track to cost more than $24 billion. Morrison struck the deal at a time WA's share of the tax pool had fallen to an all-time low of 30 cents for every dollar of GST rates within the state. Its iron ore royalties were effectively being redistributed among the other states and territories based on a Commonwealth Grants Commission formula that takes into account each state's revenue sources and expenses. Under Morrison's deal from 2022-23, WA must receive a minimum of 70 cents in the dollar before increasing to 75 cents in 2024-25. When the policy was put in place, it was expected iron ore prices would fall and WA's share of the GST pool would therefore rise. Instead, prices have soared. The Morrison government ensured other states and territories wouldn't be worse off, which requires a top-up funding for the deal to come from outside the $82.5 billion GST pool. It was originally forecast to cost federal taxpayers $2.3 billion over three years, including just $2,293 million in 2021-22. But the surge in iron ore prices has meant more top-ups over longer. And business groups have sounded the alarm that this year's climate summit could water down the world's commitment to keep global warming below the potential catastrophe threshold of 1.5 degrees. As the rubber hits the road this week on negotiations for a concrete outcome from the two-week COP27 climate summit, business leaders have now joined climate activists in voicing concern. A group of more than 200 corporate executives and companies, including Amazon, Ikea, Microsoft, Nestle, Unilever, have issued a statement demanding that the 190-plus countries at the negotiating table stick to its 2015 Paris Agreement's 1.5-degree target. Climate activists have been warning about the possibility of backsliding on the Paris Agreement and the 2021 Glasgow Pact. On Saturday, the COP27 host and president of Egypt admitted there was some substance in the fears. And Brookfield has pledged a $20 billion injection to fuel Origin Energy's green ambitions after pouncing on the power giant with, a one, with an $18 billion takeover offer, winning an early nod from the board and backing from several high-profile shareholders. After teaming up with Mike Cannon-Brooks in two unsuccessful takeover offers for AGL Energy earlier this year, Canadian private equity giant Brookfield Asset Management has switched focus to rival operator Origin, combining with US partner EIG for a knockout $9 a share bid. The deal, the third offer since talks started in August, includes a plan for Brookfield to invest an extra $20 billion in Origin through to 2030 to build new renewable supplies and back up energy capacity. Origin's board has entered into an exclusive agreement with a pair and intends to recommend the deal to shareholders should a binding offer be tabled after eight weeks of due diligence. And although the end of Neighbours after almost 37 years on the Channel 10 made it even harder to find Australian dramas on commercial TV, the country's pay TV and streaming services have stepped in to become a dominant force in producing Australian scripted drama. The big jump in pay TV and subscription streaming services spending on Australian drama up almost fourfold to $445 million in fiscal 2022 has happened as the government examines whether to force the international streamers to allocate a certain amount of money for local content. 
Unlike free-to-air broadcasters and pay TV operators, international streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus are not obliged to produce local shows. The shift will be on show on Tuesday when Foxtel debuts a new season of Upright, a drama starring Tim Minchin, while 99 Stan will release Poker Face, a movie directed and starring Marshall Crowe, on November the 22nd. The spending by streaming services is almost double the $208 million shelled out by free-to-air broadcasters last financial year, according to a report by Screen Australia. That is a little below the five-year average spend of $227 million and the number of series produced fell for a third consecutive year. And another 500 Medibank health records have been posted online, this time related to mental health and other mental illnesses, as more customers expressed anger at the insurer's handling of the most invasive data breach in Australia's history. The latest file takes a number of health records released online to 1,243, and the hackers said they would pause for Medibank's annual meeting on Wednesday and resume posting on Friday. The company said it was now in the process of contacting customers, including those 500 record holders caught up in the latest data dump, related to a range of different mental health concerns and other illnesses. The insurer is urging its customers to reach out for support as it is in the process of contacting them, but many remain unaware that their data appears on the dark web. And a class action lawsuit over Medibank's huge data breach could find itself in front of the High Court, arguing that Australians have a right to sue for invasion of privacy, a lawyer behind the legal action said. The lawsuit has already gathered the names of more than 15,000 current and former Medibank customers looking to sue their health insurer for exposing their personal details, and it's expected to be filed within a week, said George Newhouse, the principal solicitor of Centennial Lawyers, one of two law firms behind the multi-billion dollar class action. It follows a cybersecurity attack discovered on October the 12th, in which a Russian crime gang spent roughly a month inside Medibank Private's computer systems, mapping the systems and downloading sensitive identification data and health records of 9.7 million Medibank AHN and international customers. Some of that data was exposed on the internet last week after Medibank refused to pay the US 9.7 million, that's 14.5 million Aussie, ransom the criminal were demanding in exchange for deleting the data and for producing a post-incident report that would have shown Medibank how its system was compromised. Arguing that Australians have a right to sue for invasion of privacy is just one of several legal strategies being contemplated for class action, Mr Newhouse said. Other options include suing for breach of contract, arguing that Medibank breached the terms of its privacy policy when it failed to keep customer data safe, and suing for breach of Australian consumer law, Mr Newhouse said. He said a successful lawsuit that argued that people have a right to sue for breach of privacy would set an important, much-needed precedent in Australia, and the question of whether such a right exists may ultimately need to be settled by the High Court. Such a right would allow individuals to take legal action against anyone breaching their privacy, raising the stakes for Australian businesses and encouraging them to do more to protect the data they hold, proponents of the right to sue for privacy invasion say. As part of its review of Australia's Privacy Act, the Attorney General's Department is investigating whether a statutory tort for serious invasions of privacy should be introduced into Australian law, filling what the Australian Law Reform Commission has identified as an increasingly conspicuous gap in Australian law, helping to protect the privacy of Australians. Having the question settled through law reform would be helpful, Mr Newhouse said. And hundreds of thousands of ANZ, Commonwealth Bank and Westpac customers will be entitled to a share of $100 million in compensation after being sold that insurance policies following the settlement of three class actions arranged by law firm Slater and Gordon. ANZ and CBA confirmed on Monday in releases to the ASX. They had settled the legal actions after Westpac said the same in its four-year results last week. None of the banks admitted any legal liability in settlement deeds that are expected to be approved by the Federal Court early next year. The cases alleged the banks sold loan protection insurance to customers who were ineligible for coverage. This was due to various medical conditions or customers not being in employment 
invalidated in terms of policies. The bank sold consumer credit insurance, CCI policies, also known as add-on insurance, from 2010, but stopped doing so when problems with the mechanic to focus during the Hayne Royal Commission. The Australian Securities Investments Commission also targeted junk consumer credit insurance in a series of reports, then regulatory actions, which have resulted in an additional $270 million being paid in remediation across the sector. ASIC brought a legal action against Westpac relating to some CCI policies with the Federal Court making findings against the bank earlier this year. Slater and Gordon settled a similar case against National Australia Bank in 2019 for $49.5 million. That related to NAB and MLC policies sold to 50,000 customers. The final number of customers holding dodgy policies at the other three banks is not known, but is expected to run into hundreds of thousands according to documents with the court. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Chris Hutchins, the CEO of the Perfectus Group. And he'll be talking about how Perfectus helps organisations with compliance and recovery issues with its rebate deal management system, which keeps everything in one place and makes every transaction deal agreement easily referenceable, and its audit system, which tracks down any instances of overcharging or if they've undercharged, and helps organisations make claims on those shortfalls. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about citizens' juries. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.